Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh, and I'm so glad to share the next few moments with you right now. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we are learning how to live as God's people. We don't just accidentally do this. We don't just kind of wait for this to happen. We actively try to live as God's people. And we do this by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Well, we're in a third week of Advent. Wow, Christmas is almost here. I can hardly believe it, but for now, we're still in Advent, and the theme for this week is joy. C.S. Lewis writes these words about joy. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Wow, can those words serious and joy exist together? Many of us associate seriousness with a stoic stuffiness. You know, we say things like, stop joking around, it's time to get serious. Can joy be a serious reaction to life? I believe it can. Our culture, however, has made joy a synonym for pleasure, for momentary delight. Something that tickles our fancy and makes us go, ooh and ah. But joy is something more. It's far greater far bigger than pleasure or a moment of happiness. Joy is the end product of heaven and the union with God. And so again, I'll say from C.S. Lewis, he writes, joy is the serious business of heaven. It's something far bigger than we realize. So today, I want you to know that joy is for you. It can be yours. Joy is far richer and deeper than any of us know. It is both the gift of God, and it's also cultivated by our response to God. And so you and I are invited this Advent season to step into the joy of the Lord. Our sermon today, our sermon text comes from Psalm 126. That's our text for today. And uh, this might not feel like a Christmas or Advent text, but it's a psalm of celebration, a psalm that's certainly full of joy. And in these words, you'll find uh, the praises of Israel rejoicing and celebrating their restoration by the Lord. They've gone from the darkest moment in their history to becoming a people with a home again. You can hear the words in those words, the crying out of a people who felt like they had nothing And now their dreams are brought back to life. It is a truly wondrous psalm. So let's read the text. It's in Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. What beautiful words. Those words like, we're walking in a dream, a living dream. Mouths of anguish now filled with laughter. Israel's enemies and the surrounding nations, essentially, the doubters, proclaiming the Lord has done great things for them. What wonderful words in this psalm. This psalm recounts a particular moment in the history of Israel. In the year 597 B.C., or B.C.E., depending on how you want to label it, Jerusalem was conquered by the invading Babylonian armies. 
Israel lost its freedom. And uh, its best and brightest citizens were taken from their homes in Jerusalem to Babylon. In 587, Israel tried to rebel and regain their freedom, and they failed. And the result was the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that King Solomon had built. Nothing was left. Jerusalem was a wasteland, and those that were left in it, they were not skilled, and they did not have the resources to even begin to think about rebuilding the city. It was a hopeless situation, and grief ruled the entire nation. But God was not finished. Forty-nine years after the destruction of the temple, Cyrus the Great became the ruler of the world, and he issued a decree letting the Jewish captives go back home. Well, it wasn't really Cyrus that did it. We know that it was God who restored his people. Now, from Babylon to Jerusalem is a 900-mile walk. It's about nine months on foot, and it is thought that Psalm 126 was a response to that trip home. You can think of it as the walking music. <laughs> so now they talk of dreams and laughter, and those phrases make all the more sense when you think of the walk home from captivity to Jerusalem. We were like people in a dream. It was wonderful. And yeah, even phrases like sowing with tears make sense, because what a grief-stricken situation that was when they lost everything. Now, Psalm 126 is part of the Book of Psalms, and in the Book of Psalms, it's part of a section called the Psalms of Ascent. And those are psalms that are used during the most important Jewish festivals of the year, especially Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, these psalms would be sung by pilgrims going to Jerusalem all throughout their history now. From that moment where they returned, this psalm was then used for these festivals when they returned to Jerusalem, when they would ascend the Temple Mount to worship God. It became a yearly, an annual practice. You can think of this psalm and the psalms of ascent as kind of like Christmas carols. Songs for a special time of the year for worshiping God. A song that is deeply embedded in every man, woman, and child in Israel. And when they heard one Psalm 126, grief and joy would well up in the memory of the whole nation. You know, in the Walker household, Walker household we really enjoy Christmas. Um, <laughs> I know I joke about it from time to time, but Seth and I, we spend most of the fall keeping Betsy from putting out the decorations too early. It's usually sometime in September that we notice in the guest bedroom that the Christmas closet has been opened and there's a box or two out of place. The decorations are trying to sneak out, and so we try our best to keep them at bay at least until November. And then it all comes out and gets put up. Christmas music is uh, something else entirely. We have lots of it and often start listening to it way too early. Usually we're all tired of Christmas music by the time Christmas actually arrives. But for me, there are certain songs and albums that I just have to hear, or it's not really Christmas. It just doesn't feel right. I really like to hear the, the Charlie Brown Christmas album. I know it's not all that spiritual, but it's, it's just a part of the season for me. And maybe a little deeper, uh, What Child Is This? It's a song that is deep in my memory with Christmas, and it's just not Christmas till I've heard that song or Silent Night. Music really has some power, doesn't it? 
Perhaps you have a favorite song. Maybe it's not a Christmas song. Maybe it's just a song. Or maybe you have a song you dislike because of a memory that's attached to it. And we need to keep that idea in our minds as we read Psalm 126. This psalm is tied to the return of Israel to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the altar at the Temple Mount. And it's tied to Israel's biggest festivals and biggest celebrations. And in this psalm is a look back to a time when Israel was destitute and then God blessed them and restored them. And it's also a psalm that looks forward to future joy. And you too can find the promise of joy in this psalm as well. So let's take a moment and look at what joy is. Because I think it's important to take a few minutes here and think about what joy really is. Because our culture has other ideas. As I alluded to earlier, joy is more than just happiness. There's happiness in joy, don't get me wrong, but joy is more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's bigger, it's richer, it's more substantial, and something very important. <sighs> we need to know this. Joy can be found in the darkest and most troublesome moments of life. If we only associate joy with happiness then we aren't going to want to walk in those dark spaces. And none of us really like those dark spaces, but joy is found there too. The very premise of this psalm is that Israel experiences joy as they are released from a dark place, captivity. Rebecca Lyons writes this, Joy is not the absence of darkness. Joy is confidence that darkness will lift. Maybe you need to hear that today, to know that joy is a confidence that the darkness is going to end. And joy is about resolution. It's about restoration. It's about justice for the wronged. And even more so, joy results in mercy. Joy is everything in life being made right, just as it should be. Now, I want to add, it's life as it should be. Not as you and I want it to be, but as it should be. And that's different. What's wrong with it being what we want? Well, first, our wants are sometimes more selfish than they really should be. And secondly, our wants are often far too small. Through Jesus Christ, God offers you the universe set right for eternity. He offers the release from sin and the flaws of this world. Jesus offers us not simply justice for sin, but forgiveness for our sins and a second chance to experience eternity with God. And the Bible tells us that this world we live in now is only a shadow of what's to come, that there's something much be better, something more real. Colossians 2.17 says, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. There's something greater. Joy is not just the promise of heaven, but also spiritual restoration to God. William Barclay writes and says, Joy has nothing to do with material things or with a man's outward circumstance. A man living in the lap of luxury can be wretched, and a man in the depths of poverty can be overflowed with joy. Karl Barth says, Joy is the simplest form of gratitude. Ah, yes, joy is also a thank you. And that's the strange thing about joy. It comes from God, and it is also your response to God. And you cannot experience real joy without receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But with that in mind, here are a few more ideas about our part in joy when you're trying to find it for your own life. 
So you start with Christ, but then here's the things we need to know. Joy is a choice. When the people of Israel were released from captivity in Babylon, they had to choose what to believe about this new reality. Some believed it, some did not. There are many Jews who stayed in Babylon. They felt that life was better there. Others, they chose to return home. Remember, it's a 900-mile walk, a six-month journey. You do not make that sort of journey going back to a ruined home accidentally. You are intentionally making that choice. And that journey had to be a daily choice. I imagine the first few days might have been easy, filled with a euphoria and a celebration. But there had to be days when they got a little too far from the life they knew for 49 years in Babylon, and they might have thought, are you sure we still want to do this? We could go back. It was a choice. And when it comes to real joy, the real joy of Jesus, you have to choose it daily. You can stand in the care of Jesus and still believe that you are stuck in the life you had before. So you got to choose the joy of Christ, and you have to actively believe what he has done. Henry Nouwen writes this, We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety, and nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. Sometimes we feel like things take us away from God, don't they? But we choose. Will you choose joy? Joy also comes through obedience. A good way to daily choose joy is to do it by obeying. Eugene Peterson writes, Joy is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. In other words, joy is the product of obedience. And joy is the result of continually saying yes to Jesus. And joy is the result of living a life for him every day. Henry Drummond writes these words, No one can get joy by merely asking for it. It is one of the ripest fruits of the Christian life, and like all fruits, it must be grown. And I will contend that it is grown through obedience. Now here's a warning. Joy is tested. Beware of this. Jack Hiles writes, Happiness is an untested delight. Joy is delight tested. I think there's some truth there. Though we never ask for the testing, it is that very struggle that makes joy all the sweeter and more real. In Psalm 126, Israel describes itself as walking in a dream, mouths bursting with laughter. You don't get to that point without first knowing a struggle. Now, I'm not saying that you should ask for struggle. (laughs) I don't know anybody that really wants that. I'm not saying you should be excited when you face struggle or just dismiss struggle because you go, oh, something good's going to happen. But know this, that God can bring good from the midst of hardship and struggle. Please know that. In the testing you're in right now, joy can come from it. And this leads me to a strange idea, one that really struck me as I read Psalm 126, is that joy happens through grief. As I was reading Psalm 126, it was easy to get excited over the first three verses. they verses about restoration, and it's a restoration that has happened in the past. Israel got to go home, but verses 4 through 6 are kind of yet to come. So in these verses, the Negev, the desert, is described with water flowing through it. 
sowing with tears, and those weeping are, are described as carrying seed to sow. It's a kind of a strange picture, especially with a psalm filled with such joy to have a desert and, and, and weeping. Some would read the psalm saying that perhaps the psalm is describing tears of joy, not tears of sorrow, but I would say I think both are in, in mind here that yeah, there's tears of of joy, but there's some grief in the second half of this psalm. I was struck as one commentator suggested that the dry desert of the Negev is made ready for planting by our tears. Because sometimes we're in a wilderness in our lives, and the only way to get out is the grief. Sometimes the roughest parts of our lives require the tears of our grief. Now, uh, you probably could look up online. I know Google comes up with images very easily. A picture of the Negev. It's a wildly dry place. And there is a particular riverbed, the Nahal Paran, in the Negev. Um, it's in Egypt's part of the Sinai Peninsula, and it's in Israel's part of that same peninsula, the Negev Desert. And it's about 150 kilometers long. It's the third largest water course in Israel uh, after the Jordan River. Um, it's also the widest water course in Israel, but it's almost always dry. It's important, this Nahal Paran, because it's um, a place where the seasonal rains drop. And those, without the seasonal rains, nothing could survive. But the water never stays. Much of the water hits the ground in that desert and it rushes off. You can see from the photos you find on the internet, it looks like a dry riverbed. It's white and sandy and then there's rocks all around it. But the white sandy part is where the water flows and it just rushes off into the sea and it's of no use. But some of the water soaks down into deep wells and underground pools. And so even though it looks so dry, that rainfall is so necessary. And your grief is necessary to fill the wells, sustain life. Woodrow Kroll puts it this way, We rejoice in spite of our grief, not in place of it. Mary Oliver writes in a poem, We shake with joy, we shake with grief. What a time they have, these two housed as if they are in the same body. Not as if, but they are in the same body. And perhaps that's really the key, is joy and grief are not at war with one another. Perhaps grief, in turn, builds joy. Jack Wellman writes, joy is best sown in broken ground. Maybe you're listening today from a place of grief or depression or distress. Know that Jesus is with you. And he has people in his church that care about you. And he can build joy out of your grief if you will invite him to do so. One more perspective on Psalm 126 for you to think about. And it is this, Jesus is the source of joy. And what I mean by this, and I'll start with some words from uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he writes this, Jesus is the only one who most fully experiences the Psalms in every low and every high of human grief and glory. 
I mentioned earlier that Psalm 126 was sung every year by Israel when they entered Jerusalem during their most important festivals. Remember, this is a psalm asking for restoration. And in all four Gospels, we encounter the story of what we call the triumphal entry, Jesus going to Jerusalem at the festival of Passover. And we know that this is ultimately when he goes in so that he can go to the cross and give his life for our sins. But picture, if you will, the Passover season, and this is Psalm 126. It's being sung all by the people all through Passover week, kind of like a Christmas carol. And perhaps like a Christmas carol, they sing the psalm more with memories that it brings out than what it's actually saying. And so Israel sings a line like, those who sow with tears. And they're not really thinking about those tears anymore or what that means. But Luke tells us something about Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. In Luke 19.41, we read these words. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus is living out Psalm 126. It is his tears. The tears of the restorer. And we know that when he's on the cross, Jesus cries out from Psalm 22. He cries out as the Messiah, because he is the Messiah. And he quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out. He's living out. He is Psalm 126. He is the restorer. And it is his tears that can bring life to you and joy to you. Advent is a season of preparation and expectation. And we're not just commemorating Christmas. We're looking forward to the fulfillment of the work of Jesus. We're looking for his return. We're looking for heaven. And perhaps you need to invite Jesus in to renew your relationship with him and allow him to do a new work of joy in your life today. Let him restore you. Let's pray. Lord, today we pray for joy awakened in our lives. Help us to hunger for more than just momentary happiness, but instead to desire your very real presence in our lives. Help us to cultivate holy joy through obedience to Jesus. And I pray for the person who is stricken with grief and sorrow right now, that you may restore them. And above all, thank you for Jesus who gave his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and know everlasting joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.